sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. Rethreaded offers hope and a fresh start to survivors of human trafficking right here in Jacksonville. None of us should be defined by the worst things that happen to us. Learn more about how you can unlock the potential of survivors at Rethreaded.com. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servin, a practicing neurologist and professor of healthcare science. This is What's Health Got to Do With It, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, what does brain health mean to you? Then, what's happening to our vets and rates of death by suicide? But first, do you recognize this soundtrack? from literally one of my favorite movies of all time. Christopher Nolan masterpiece, Inception. I love Christopher Nolan movies as he often touches upon the themes of brain health and its frailties, whether pertaining to the ephemeral nature of human memory or the mysteries of sleep. So this gets me thinking, when I talk about brain health, what does that mean to you? Now, you might be wondering why even the fuss about brain health We'll strap in because as our esteemed guests will reveal, it's not just about avoiding the occasional senior moment or forgetting where you put your keys. It's literally a symphony of neurons playing the soundtrack to a life well lived. Stay tuned as we unravel the mysteries of the Brain Health Initiative by the American Academy of Neurology, where neurologists are not just doctors. They're the maestros orchestrating a brainy revolution. Grab your thinking cap, folks. It's time to flex those mental muscles. And joining us to explain all of this is first Dr. Natalia Rost. She is chief of the Massachusetts General Hospital uh, Stroke Division, a professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, and president-elect of the American Academy of Neurology. Dr. Rost, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's so good to have you here. And Mr. David Evans, he is Chief Executive Officer of Texas Neurology, and he joins us as well. Mr. Evans, welcome. 
Thank you for having us, Dr. Servin. It is so good to have you both. Let's start off with Dr. Roast. I asked a question to our listeners, what is brain health? I'll ask you, how do you define brain health for neurologists, the listener, healthcare partners in the public? What is brain health? Well, as you know, Joe, uh, brain health is a complex construct. And for years, there were as many definitions as there were attempts to get at it, so to speak, from multiple angles. And it was really going in circles like a self-fulfilling prophecy, kind of like that proverbial elephant in the dark room story where everybody had their own definition. And I love how you started the show by asking, what does brain health mean to you? Because there is really a myriad of ways of saying uh, what brain health is. But what the American Academy of Neurology or the AAN has done is actually gotten together a whole a bunch of experts in brain health covering multiple aspects and covering multiple life stages when brain health is so critical for us from you know, our childhood to our old age. And we've tried to come up with a consensus on how to define the brain health really to be um, a, a comprehensive but also a concise way of delivering this uh, information. And so our official definition was released earlier this year in the Academy's position statement on brain health, and it states that brain health is a continuous state attaining and maintaining the optimal neurologic function that best supports one's physical, mental, and social well-being through every stage of life. So as you can see, there are, we're covering a lot of ground here yeah. uh, in a concise way, and we can spend a lot of time dissecting the details, but uh, we will continue this conversation. I love it. And and you're right, this is very kind of huge when you consider how big it is for everyone, well, everyone on the planet, really. Uh, Mr. Evans, there's an initiative from the American Academy of Neurology behind brain health. Can you tell us at least or provide an overview of what that health initiative looks like. Yeah, so we we broke it out into short, intermediate, and long-term goals. In the short term, the AN will lead to organize the field of brain health and its stakeholders, uh, which there are a lot of, to better define and advance this concept of brain health. In the intermediate term, the Academy is gonna serve as the primary source of the trusted information on brain health for both patients the public and the members, which are the neurologists, as well as policymakers. We know that's going to be an important uh, area that we need to educate and move sort of the needle in regards to making this sort of a priority. The long term is really building these collaborations that Dr. Rose spoke of. So this will be neurologists working to optimize brain health across the entire life course of individuals and within communities, including this development of primary care for the brain, actively providing brain health care, and promoting brain health education and research as part of a preventive neurologic care strategy. So lots of exciting things. I loved your uh, reference to inception. Yeah. My interest is exactly for that, the potential that lies ahead of us. I love it. Do Dr. Roast, uh, there are so many healthcare initiatives out there. What motivated the American Academy of Neurology to focus on brain health as a key aspect of the public, if you will, engaging on that theme? You know, uh, I believe that brain health is truly the imperative of our times. 
uh, with neuroscience being the last remaining frontier as we unlock the mysteries of human health and disease. And also the timing is right because of the growing interest in individuals young and old in health and well-being. But we also can no longer delay this movement uh, because of the general state of the population health. If the recent pandemic taught us anything, an optimal state of health is a very fragile concept. And just look at how, for the first time in decades, the average life expectancy uh, declined and kind of bounced about for both men and women in the United States and how the mental health crisis really deepened for the, all of the segments of the population. So on one hand, we have this pressure uh, from the developing trends within the population. And on the other hand, we're entering one of the most exciting times in neurology with diagnostic and treatment options uh, that are growing exponentially for almost every aspect of brain disease, including genetic diseases, brain inflammation, stroke, my specialty, epilepsy, your specialty, and even Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's. But all of these treatments are, and disability related to brain and neurological disease translate into enormous costs uh, for healthcare. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is uh, a plan uh, of preventing these diseases rather than playing catch up on the havoc that they uh, wreck. And this is where the concept of brain health comes in. And the AAN for decades has demonstrated a commitment to brain health through its public outreach and you know, successful publications like Brain in Life magazine and Brain in Life in Espanol website, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but at this point, we have um, basically combined the multitude of our activities and prioritizing brain health uh, as key aspect of public engagement is what's really effectively launched the AAN's Brain Health Initiative. I love it. So exciting. Uh, Mr. Evans, you know, this, I imagine, involves a sea change in how neurologists like me and Dr. Rose work. Um, one of the changes that I imagine will occur has to do with the fact that we have to focus on preventative neurology. Most of the time we're focused when the disease has occurred. Um, what ways do, uh, do you envision, does the Academy of Neurology envision neurologists serving as these specialists in brain health contributing to preventative neurology? And what about other doctors? Yeah, so neurologists have served um, and will continue to serve as the primary stewards of brain health for those living with a neurological condition, but primary care, family practice physicians, mental health providers, they're all going to be essential to how we engage patients in the public on maximizing, you know, one's potential as it relates to optimal brain function. In neurology specifically, we have a significant workforce shortage. So to achieve our mission and the mission of all of our stakeholders in brain health, we're going to need to expand brain health awareness to both physician training programs and direct to public messaging. We also want to see brain health as part of a standard wellness visit. That's that's huge uh, just to consider brain health. And and I think most people who are listening would applaud that. Uh, Dr. Roast, uh, there are lots of parts of that initiative that uh, Mr. Evans was talking about for brain health. Could you kind of just summarize what are the top three goals uh, that are that will be the first steps, if you will, to be accomplished uh, as part of this initiative. 
That's right. Uh, and the top three goals, uh, we call them the top three ambitious goals of the American Academy of Neurology Brain Health Initiative. And the reason why we call them the ambitious goals is because we truly identify with this concept of a moonshot initiative in this case that the AAN is undertaking, kind of like the cancer moonshot. Yeah. And we want to break through that sound barrier and truly set the expectations high. Um, you know, because if any organization is going to be able to leverage the power of brain science, patient care and advocacy, it's the AAN. But those goals are key components of the brain health platform, which also includes the positions on brain health and the national brain health vision that we proposed. And the goals are really to accelerate scientific discovery in brain health, which is, you know, big science goal to optimize brain health through integration of preventive care practices. So that's that preventive care concept that we're talking about. Right. And number three is enhancing public and patient engagement to advance public policy in brain health, because without changing the big issues, the big structural issues within the society through public policy and through the grass movement that involves public and the patients uh, with neurologic and other brain conditions, we really are not going to be able to make that change. So we need all three elements. I love it. Mr. Evans, um, there's so much that has to be done in this area uh, in order to make a meaningful impact on public health. Can you elaborate how this initiative is going to get us to move the needle, if you will, when it comes to brain health that the, our listeners out there, you know, can feel in touch, if you will. Yeah, the first is to say the American Academy of Neurology is always based on science and will continue to follow science and data that's going to help guide us. But we also need to ensure policymakers and the public have the information needed to make these informed decisions to improve their brain health, both them at the individual level, but their public life, their work setting and in their communities. And it's going to require the significant rethinking of how we consider our environments, both at home, work, how we socialize, but also how our government allocates resources and funds. We know there's a significant economic impact on brain-related disorders in this country, both direct and indirect costs. And addressing this has the potential to not only address this negative impact on our economy, but the incredible upside potential. We can improve the overall well-being of individuals regardless if they have a brain-related condition or not. And that's our goal. Dr. Rost, there's a lot of uh, parts of this initiative, including a brain health platform and an action plan framework. Can you let us know what are those steps involve or, or what are those platform and the framework in, in as an overall sense for, for those that are interested? I'd love to. Uh, you know, as neurologists, we wanted to be visionary with our take on advancement of brain health, and we wanted to be strategic. So we knew that we had to propose not just another wish list, so to speak, of what we uh, want to happen for the brain health to, you know, magically occur, but actually uh, the, a position uh, or, or uh, an initiative that will position us as a field and uh, our collaborators in such a way that we are bound for success. And so that's the origin of the AAN's brain health platform, which really encompasses the AAN's positions on brain health, the three ambitious goals that we've discussed earlier, and the AAN's national brain health vision 2050, uh, which we um, uh, presented in, in our position statement. 
And that's where action plan um, comes um, uh, to play. And so these three elements, positions, goals, and the vision is what makes the AN's Brain Health Platform so robust. The positions reflect our take on the impact and significance of the problem we're aiming to solve uh, or the future we're trying to advance, um, such as the AN's envisioned future of optimal brain health for all. The three ambitious goals are really centered on brain health science, patient care, and public policy, uh, and set the stage for key directions in achieving that future. And the goals, uh, they reflect the uh, advancements that are needed uh, to achieve the brain health vision. And so that's, that's the overall uh, framework of the platform and the action plan is really how we get there providing, so to speak, the blueprint on how to get to the vision that we envisioned for 2050. And to all of our listeners out there, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJZT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and if you're just joining us, we're talking about brain health, and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservin. Mr. Evans, um, how will this platform incorporate policy, education, research, to achieve its objectives. It, it just seems like it's so huge. It is. And as Dr. Roast had stated, you know, public policy, education, research are really the three pillars that are foundational to our mission. And all three will be key to ensure we have a stable foundation for success. But public policy is truly essential for any significant change to be successful. And we are seeing this already internationally. There have been domestic efforts to date. But the AN is in development for a very bold national public policy that will not only outline what is needed of all the appropriate governmental agencies to that singular mission of improving both the mental crisis we find ourselves in following the pandemic and the increase in burden of brain-related conditions such as Alzheimer's. We also want everyone to optimize their brain health so they can live their best life beyond the need for public policy, be advancing research, educating both the public, the healthcare community, and other stakeholders as the science um, evolves. Dr. Rose, can you share specific examples of how the Academy of Neurology will collaborate with other brain health providers and organizations to advance its goals? I mean, the fact is that uh, neurologists aren't the only doctors that are involved in brain health. There are psychiatrists, there are neurosurgeons, uh, there's rehab doctors. So how will the Academy of Neurology collaborate with these other specialists who also are involved in brain health? Absolutely. We cannot own, and this is the cardinal principle uh, with which we started this initiative, that collaboration is going to be at the core of it. I can think of a number of examples uh, that is already happening, but I'll just mention that our AAN's Brain Health Summit which had happened uh, in the uh, inaugural uh, year in 2022 in our second uh, summit that just happened in September of this year in Washington, D.C., a prime examples of collaboration where more than 100 organizations uh, got in uh, together in the room and started the conversation. But I actually want David uh, to comment on them because I know that he uh, is particularly interested and also um, um, invested in collaboration as a model for brain health initiative. 
David? Yeah, thank you, Dr. Rose. I mean, really important, the Brain Summit, you know, this year's uh, theme was collaboration. As Dr. Rose said, we had, had over 150 participants serving a broad breadth of, you know, different individuals that are stakeholders from, from societies to organizations to governmental entities. We had, you know, professional societies, researchers, large health systems, commercial payers in that room, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and someone from the Biden administration. And the goal was to participate in developing a coordinated approach forward. So again, along with the AN's own brain health mission, we wanna to work to amplify the existing work of other organizations and proceed with this collaborative approach forward. And again, we believe that bringing all the stakeholders together will allow us to meet all the objectives of not only the AN's brain health initiative, but this overall mission that we're on. And we're also proud of the collaboration between the American Academy of Neurology and the American Heart Association in creating the SACO Scholars Award. This was awarded to early career trainees focused on brain health and preventative neurology. And this award is due to the generous bequests of Dr. Ralph L. Sacco, unfortunately lost this year to a brain tumor. He dedicated uh, his whole life to brain health and this generous gift will create a community of awardees in the future and be a fitting legacy to his work, not only in Florida, but around the globe. Dr. Roast, I want to jump to uh, yet a, another part of this, and, and this has to do with the AN Brain Health Action Plan. Um, how will this address the increasing burden of neurologic disorders on public health? Well, the action plan is designed as a blueprint that helps us guide toward the national brain health future. That future is a future of optimal brain health for all. So that addresses not only the public that so far enjoyed uh, brain health um, and is kind of in the primordial stages of prevention, but also those patients uh, who live with neurological conditions and we're striving to achieve optimal brain health for all. I know that uh, David is particularly interested in that topic and he can comment on that uh, uh, further. David? Yeah, the first is by educating the public on how to keep their brain healthy, how they can optimize their brain performance. You know, with that, I highly recommend that your listeners subscribe not only to your great podcast, but the AN's Brain and Life magazine. And they can do this by going to brainandlife.org. This will be the primary vehicle the Academy of Neurology uses to educate the public with essential science-based information featuring lots of celebrities and of course, lots of neurologists. We also have our Brain and Life podcast co-hosted by Dr. Daniel Correa and Dr. Katie Peters and is available on your preferred podcast platform. In addition to that, we need advanced funding of brain health, address in inequities in this country that exist in our communities. There remains a lot of work to be done, but we're prepared for that path forward. Dr. Rose and I are excited for what the future holds for all of us. Dr. Rose, let me kind of get to where our listeners may be asking. What uh, One of the things that they want to know, what are the key messages, if you will, uh, that the Academy of Neurology uh, takes on brain health? I think you've mentioned several of them, but, but what are those things that you want to make sure that um, those key positions are out there that our listeners kind of take home with them as they listen to our interview today? Well, I think that uh, the most important uh, takeaway from this conversation is that very few things in life matter without brain health, right? But it's very important for the public, the patients and their families to know 
that there are professionals out there like the neurologist with the American Academy of Neurology behind them and all of our collaborators within the Brain Health Initiative uh, who are stakeholders in that, who really care about uh, the brain health of the public and the community uh, and fighting for the future of optimal brain health. But with that, there are very specific positions that uh, you know, the organizations take and the AAN actually as part of their brain health platform took very three specific positions on brain health. Number one, that brain health is key to neurologic health and also core function of neurology. By that elevating brain health to the level of uh, competency as well as a function of a profession, which is very important, meaning that somebody is really fighting for it, standing for that, and you know, making sure that that uh, you know that is a, a, a stronghold uh, for our patients and their families. Now, the second position is that the brain health is foundational to the overall health of communities throughout the United States and worldwide. Why is that important? Is because it's not just the individual brain health, but also health of the communities. Uh, and as we know, communities bring with them a lot of complexities in terms of access to healthcare, in terms of the equity, in terms of uh, availability of services. So we want to make sure that everyone benefits from that, not only in the United States, but worldwide. And we're building gradually uh, from an individual to a community, to a global community. And number three is that brain health requires collaboration between the many disciplines that share a mission to promote prevention of neurologic diseases, optimal mental health and well-being of individuals across the lifespan, meaning that it'll take a village and a global village at that, I think, you know, if we're going to solve the problems on a global level. But everybody who is listening should probably, everybody who is listening should definitely know that there are specialists out there, neurologists and other brain specialists who are really thinking about their brain health. Dr. Russell, I'll point this one at you and, and, and both you and David can kind of guide me. Uh, one of the big hot topics in all parts of healthcare uh, is always on AI, uh, AI, new technologies, new innovations. How will the Academy of Neurology leverage this kind of like logarithmic jump in our use of AI innovation technology in advancing brain health as it pertains uh, to the context of preventative neurology? So I'll start, Dr. Servan. I mean, look, it's an exciting time for technology and honestly for us as consumers, but especially when it comes to like healthcare, the expanding number of health-related devices and apps, I mean, it is an exciting time, but technology is advancing at warp speed. Uh, so what's important for us is to closely monitor how best to advance the use of technology and AI in our efforts. And without a doubt, it's gonna play an important role in providing both real-time tracking and hopefully interventions that we may do or perform better or better health outcomes. And so there's a lot out there and we're, we're currently doing an assessment of what exists, how they align with our overall health initiatives and uh so more to come in that area and uh we'll have more specifically to that topic in our brain and life in an upcoming episode that's great uh dr roast um as you consider this initiative brain health and this this dramatic vision which is fantastic uh how do you see it resonating with the broader 
society's goals? It's almost a philosophical question. It sounds like that, but uh, the truth is very simple. Everybody needs an optimally functioning brain, right? Because right. brain is what makes us aware and concerned about all other aspects of life and of our health, not to mention being the center of our joy and fulfillment in life, right? So when we were building our national brain health vision, we wanted to cover all the necessary aspects relevant uh, to what uh, uh, aspire to. And that includes the accumulation of brain health science. Uh, that includes growing the cross-disciplinary field of preventive neurology. This includes developing evidence-based guidelines on brain health for all ages. As David mentioned, we're very science-driven. We want to make sure that we provide meaningful, impactful, and validated recommendations on that. But this also in this health, brain health vision includes the codif codifying a well-brain visit into a routine clinical practice and a standard of care. It includes educating professionals and the public with trustworthy information about brain health. And all of these efforts uh, leading um, and also being led by the National Brain Health Plan, something similar to the National Alzheimer's Project Plan or NAPA to guide research, care, and public engagement priorities. This is our vision for 2050. Can we get to it by 2050? I sincerely hope so. And we're already making uh, solid st uh, strides uh, with, uh, with our collaboration initiatives, with our summits, with our position statement, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the future is bright, I believe. I love it. Mr. Evans, I have one more question uh, as we get to the close of our interview here. Uh, I'm sure people are listening out there and they want to participate in and obviously benefit from this brain health initiative. How can an individual or group, w whether it's with or without a neurological condition or problem, actively become part of this movement? Yeah, I and mean, this this is one of the biggest challenges I think for us as we look forward is how to engage the public in ways that's uh, you know successful for them, clear. It's a very crowded space. It's also we're getting so many so much information, but I think simple things like if we follow uh, some of the same factors about eating well, dieting, exercise, challenging our brain. These are some basic things, but we want to better understand specifically how each of those can impact our brain health. Talk to your neurologist if you have one. If you don't. Again, brain and life will be sort of our central way that we communicate. We're going to have a lot more to come in this next year. So I think uh, your audience will be very happy to see very direct, specific ways they can improve their brain health. Dr. Russ, I'll give you the final word for today. What message do you want to make sure that our listeners take away from our conversation today? I think we have a lot of work ahead of us uh, for the academy, for the entire field of neurology and the for coalition of willing in a professional sense. But I think that our work is really enriched by the current trend uh, among the you know, generations of, of, of public out there who are basically very actively engaged in their health, this revolution of wellness and people being really charged uh, with uh, excitement with regard to taking control of their health. So this is, uh, you know, this is a movement. Uh, I think we are riding a wave that is going to bring us to a meaningful, um, you know, uh, realization of what the optimal brain health look 
uh, looks like in the future. But I really want to say to the patients and the public um, uh, who are listening, uh, you know, talk to your uh, providers and to the providers, talk to your patients. Every ounce of prevention counts and every ounce of prevention in health will contribute to brain health. So stay tuned, uh, stay engaged. More information is coming from the trustworthy sources and the future of brain health is bright. I love it. Thank you so much. I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Natalia Rost, and you, uh, Mr. David Evans, for a terrific interview. This is what an exciting way to start 2024. I just want to thank you both for giving me your time uh, and just sharing this exciting information with myself and our audience today. Thank you, Dr. Sherman. Happy New Year, everybody. Absolutely. Happy New Year. We've been talking to Dr. Natalia Rose. She's chief of the Division of Stroke at Massachusetts General Hospital, professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, and the president-elect of the American Academy of Neurology. And Mr. David Evans, he is chief executive officer of Texas Neurology. Both of them have been talking to us about the exciting new brain health initiative by the American Academy of Neurology. Up next, a look at suicide rates in veterans here in Northeast Florida. And we'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and this is What's Health Got to Do With It. After talking about our plans for brain health in the future, we shift our focus to a matter of immediate importance, and that's the alarming rise in veteran suicides nationally. But we're going to start talking about what's happening here in Northeast Florida, and we're going to be diving deep into that critical issue that affects our nation's heroes. Every year, the VA releases its annual veteran suicide report, which has shown an increase in suicides nationwide since 2021. Now, the Firewatch report shows a different trajectory here locally. This report serves as a predictor to the VA's data six months before it's released. Now, Florida's considered a harbinger for the future because Florida has the third highest veteran population in the entire U.S. But before we introduce our expert, let's ponder this. How can we, as a community, bridge the gaps and provide better support to those who've sacrificed so much for our freedom? Joining us today is Nick Howland. He is executive director of Firewatch, and a Navy veteran. Uh, the Firewatch is a nonprofit dedicated to Florida's fight to end veteran suicide. And we're building a life-saving network of community members and organizations trained to identify the warning signs of veterans in crisis and direct those veterans to the help they need. 
To date, no city, county, or state has systematically reduced its veteran suicide rate that we know of. But modeled after CPR training, our effort is the first of its kind in the country, according to the website from Firewatch. Now, a warning to our listeners, uh, we're going to be discussing suicide. And if you or a loved one are thinking about suicide, please, please call the National Suicide Hotline 988. But we welcome our executive director of Firewatch, Nick Helen, to our program. It's so good to have you here in studio. Dr. Joe, thank you for having me. Thanks for that wonderful introduction and covering all that data. And most importantly, thanks for bringing attention to this epidemic of veteran suicide. It's a national, it's a regional, it's a local epidemic. It's so true. Post-pandemic, we have been all so engulfed in mental health issues, and it's so rampant, and it just breaks my heart about uh, the veterans. But before we dive deep into that, there are probably a lot of individuals or listeners out there who may not be aware or know about Firewatch. So tell us about Firewatch. Yes, sir. The Firewatch is Florida's fight to end veteran suicide, and we're doing it differently. We're trying to end veteran suicide by preventing veteran suicide. If you look back to 2001, where the VA regularly starts its reporting of veteran suicide data, you'll see that we've lost over 6,000 military veterans to suicide each year, and the number goes up. And what's really interesting and unfortunate is that if you look at this like you would look at any other national health Um, issue, we're losing veterans at a rate of twice that of civilians to suicide. The solutions that have been offered to date have all been around ending it and resolving symptoms. There has not been a solution around prevention. So that's when I say the Firewatch is about ending veteran suicide by preventing veteran suicide. We're trying to get veterans to the resources they need, whether they're in crisis or even whether they're upstream, um, to help that they need that could identify some of the risk factors that are most prevalent. We're trying to end veteran suicide by preventing it in the first place. I am so happy to be uh, featuring this because it's such a huge topic. But before we get into the mechanics of how you're going about doing that, tell us about how how did you get involved? I, I said that you're a Navy veteran, how did how did this come to be with your involvement in this? That's right. I'm a Navy veteran, but I got out a long time ago. I was um, active duty from 1995 to 1999, a surface warfare officer, and also spent some time in the special warfare community. Wow. I got out just before 9-11. I was in business school during 9-11, and then I've had a career since then in manufacturing of uh, defense and marine products, mostly protective products. And I've watched all my friends, both on ships and in the SEAL community, go through 20-plus years since 9-11 during the whole global war on terror through high op tempo, through long deployments, um, through multiple uh, times in the Middle East, Iraq or Afghanistan. And I've watched folks struggle with mental health issues, uh, with TBI. I've seen folks struggle through... 
uh, loss of relationships, um, financial issues, loss of sense of purpose. And um, when I got wind through friends in the veteran advocacy community in Northeast Florida that this initiative to end veteran suicide by prevention, modeled after CPR, was in the works, I asked how I could help, and I got brought on as executive director. That's amazing. I mentioned in the introduction to this piece that nationally the rate of veteran suicides is going up, but there's a different, a, well, a different trajectory uh, happening here locally. What is the latest data from here that you can speak about? Yeah, great question, Joe. So when the Firewatch was conceived, it was during the year 2019, which was the highest number on record in Northeast Florida for veteran suicides. So folks from Baker Clay, Nassau, St. John's, and Duval County got together and created the entity that is now manifested itself as the Firewatch. And that year we had 78 veteran suicides, the year 2019. Wow. Yep. Uh, It was also a rate, I mentioned before, rate of veteran suicide. We had a rate of losing 42 veterans for every 100,000. The rate of civilian suicides that year in Northeast Florida was roughly 17 or 18 um, per 100,000. So we had a rate in Northeast Florida over two times that of civilian, whereas across the nation we're seeing um, roughly one and a half to two times. We had a problem in Northeast Florida. Well, one of the things that we did, the first things we did when we created the Firewatch was see how we can get better data. You alluded to the VA veteran suicide report. That data is reported annually, roughly in the September, October timeframe. It's generally about two years in arrears. So what we just saw in November, 2023 was reporting data that ended in 2021. We brought on a team locally here in Northeast Florida called NLP Logics, a data analytics team, and asked them if they could help us solve the problem about getting local and regional data. They solved that problem. They went to the Florida Department of Health, uh, and they accessed a lot of their metadata, basically uh, medical examiner death certificates, uh, to determine who who has passed as a veteran and who has died for a cause that is suicide. And um, we, turns out, that's the same metadata that the state of Florida provides to the VA and other 49 states provide similar data to the VA. So we're able to get it. We're able to um, collect it and analyze it much quicker than the VA. So our data, we can sort not only for the state of Florida, but by county and even within county by census tract, we can look at what's happening in veteran suicides. We can also sort it by age, gender, race, and means. Um, which is remarkable. The data is much more impactful and mm-hmm. actionable than the VA data that we see. And it's we can produce it six months ahead of the VA report. That is amazing. So so you have this data, you you got it, you you're able to kind of really kind of drill down. So what you you keep mentioning it, this is modeled after CPR. Yep. So how, because I imagine this would be kind of very important to the rest of the country hearing a success like this. Absolutely. Uh, how did you guys do it? So really the main reason that we wanted actionable, impactful data that we can look um, by county or by census tract or by age, race, gender, or means is because our main program that the Firewatch launched, again, you uh, mentioned it, alluded, uh, uh, inspired by CPR, is called the Watchstander Program. And basically what we're doing is we are trying to train as many community members as we can to be able to recognize the warning signs of a veteran 
um, whether in crisis or upstream, and get them to the help they need. It's a very simple program, just like CPR over time has been simplified. CPR, when I took it back in to be a lifeguard back in 1988 or 89, uh, involved a dummy in a two-day class yeah, in a yeah. YMCA. Now you can actually get certified online. It's a very short course, and you basically just learn to pump to staying alive. Um, so the reason the, the CPR has simplified that training is because they want to expand it to as many members of the community as they can. Why? Because they want people out there, clinically you would call this, Dr. Joe, you'd know better than me, but an early intervention yes. gatekeeper system. They want people out there being able to recognize those signs and get someone to help. Not providing the help themselves necessarily, but getting people to help. So our Watchstander program trains people to do that in a 30-minute, concise, easy-to-understand training. When you're done with the training, we send every participant a free wristband, wallet card, car sticker, uh, and we give them access to a portal developed for us by an organization called Psych Armor. And um, Psych Armor is the nation's leading military and veteran cultural affinity online training organization. So it's we've created this great program, and now we've trained over 5,700 members of the community across the state of Florida um, to intervene and get veterans to the help they need. Where we started was in Northeast Florida. And so the first two years of the program, the year 2020 and the year 2021, we were implementing here, again, Baker, Clay, Duval, Nassau, and St. John's Counties, the upper northeast corner of the state. And in the year 2021, the latest data we have, veteran suicides um, in the five-county area were 42. So I mentioned 78 in 2019, yeah, yeah. 42 in 2001. So over wow. a two-year program, that the uh, two-year period where the Watch Standard program has been in place, we've reduced veteran suicides by 46%. That is amazing. And, and so I guess my, my question that would naturally follow with that. Do you think, is there something unique about Northeast Florida versus other places that you think you're going to, have you tried it outside, uh, outside Northeast Florida? Because I imagine our listeners out there would wonder, well, what about Cincinnati or Phoenix or exactly. Minneapolis? Well, when we hit a thousand watchstanders, um, which was, gosh, um, probably towards the end of 2020, um, all here in Northeast Florida, the state called us, uh, the Florida Department of Veteran Affairs, and said, could you expand this across any other parts of the state? Well, since we have good data, sure. we knew that the next highest and most vulnerable areas um, where veterans are at risk across the state of Florida are in the Tampa Bay area in Southeast Florida, specifically Hillsborough and Pinellas County, and then in Southeast Florida, Palm Beach and Broward County. Um, so with state funding, we hired folks there and we started expanding our network there. So out of our 5,700 folks trained in the state of Florida, uh, roughly about 38 or 3,900 are here in Northeast Florida. The others now are, um, we're starting to build networks in those other places. And um, the, the training is universal. Really, it doesn't matter if you're in the state of Florida or in Cincinnati. Um, what we tell people, again, trying to develop a very simple program, is if they're in crisis, um, call 988 right away. And for veterans, you can press one and you'll get to someone who's a mental health specialist um, who can help you through your, your issue or the veteran through the issue. Um, if they're just uh, need help, if they're upstream, call 211 um, across all of the state of Florida 
every resident anywhere, no matter where they are in the state of Florida, can call 211 and get access to resources. And we also um, tell people on the Watchstander uh, program at Take the Training that we have a guide to resources across the state of Florida that we've developed in partnership with the Florida Department of Veteran Affairs. But if you're in Cincinnati, 988 and 211 still work. I think there's only a couple patches across the country where 211 um, is not a 24-7 uh, service offered to citizens. Let me talk a little bit about... Um... Uh, veteran uh, depression and veteran suicide. It, I know that you have gone out to help prevent this. Um, you kind of brought up a few of the factors in your examples, but does the data tell us what's getting people to that point to begin with, if you will? It does. Um the data that we collect doesn't necessarily, but the data the VA collects and sure. can look at in more deeply does. Um, our data will tell us that over um, 79% of um, veteran suicides in the state of Florida are uh, caused by the firearms. Um, but as far as specific risk factors, right. um, the data that we collect because of the metadata we collect doesn't show right. that. But we do know that reasons that veterans die by suicide are highly correlated to the reason civilians die by suicide. A lot of it comes in sense of loss. Um, so sense of, um, you know, in the military, they train you to act as a team and sacrifice self for mission. Um, so once you are no longer associated with that mission, you have loss of sense of purpose. Once you're no longer associated with that team or that ship, um, loss of camaraderie with your shipmates or your teammates. Uh, often, particularly in the last 20 years, which is a real issue with long deployments, um, you have uh, loss associated with uh, relationships. And folks who don't retire, maybe they get out after four years, you have a sense of loss with um uh, financial stability. So it's a lot of it goes to sense of loss. And of course, um, undiagnosed mental health issues, uh, traumatic brain injury or PS, uh, PTSD. Those are the same issues in veterans that affect civilians, perhaps exacerbated in veterans. One of the things that we bring up a lot on this show um, is the fact that we, we have limitations on mental health resources or at least access to decent mental health resources. And I, I'm wondering, I know you have, this is amazing work of, of, of truly trying to help them out. Is Are there enough resources on, on the handover, if you will, uh, from the people, you, you train these people to identify them, but then to get them the help they need, do they have enough resources? Are there resources for, the, for vets, uh, you know, once they're identified at risk? Well, being completely immersed in the veteran advocacy community now for about four years, um, in Northeast Florida, we have a plethora and wonderful access um, uh, to resources for veterans to access. Um, it, I mentioned before that the solution to trying to end veteran suicide over the past before the fire watch was treatment, trying to resolve a symptom. So the resources that exist to resolve symptoms are out there. Yeah. The issue that we found was getting veterans aware of and to those resources, which the watch Center program helps solve. So the, you know, I think people know by now um, all veterans are entitled to free mental health services at any time. In fact, um, it's been that way for several years through the VA. And our VAs here in Northeast Florida are high high performing. Um, not true, I think, um, uniformly throughout the rest of the state, but certainly in Northeast Florida. And uh, a recent um, uh, rule passed by the VA allows reimbursement for any veteran if they um, are suicidal to walk into any urgent care or ER anywhere, whether it's a VA facility or not. And the VA will reimburse um, that facility for treatment. So there is access 
uh, for anyone, for um, any veteran for mental health treatment. And, and that's just mentioning the VA. There's a wonderful new organization here that's, that's really um, accomplishing great things nationwide. Uh, but we actually have a, a clinic here called the um, Cohen Veteran Clinic mm-hmm. um, at Centerstone. It's over off uh, AC Skinner in uh, Northeast Florida. And um, that is a, a free uh, or low-cost um, uh, mental health clinic for veterans and their families, and it's completely confidential. So you've always had the stigma in the military and among right. veterans that if I report that I am having mental health issues, it's going to get to my commanding officer or it's going to get to my boss um, or it might hurt you know members of my family. So this is a completely confidential, low-cost, no-cost service for veterans, and um, they will staff up. Um, to meet needs. So um, it's been an amazing resource. And then we have other uh, uh, just wonderful resources across the, the region and the state. Wounded Warrior Project, Canines for Warriors, Operation New Uniform, um, several um, for uh, almost any need that needs to be addressed for a veteran. One of the um, things that uh, you just brought up is stigma. Stigma is always such a huge issue. Do you see that improving? Hopefully so. Um, one of the kind of byproducts of building a watchstander network um, where people are out there encountering veterans where they live, work, and play and asking them uh, if they're doing okay is destigmatizing re- the response to that. Maybe I'm having some difficulties. Destigmatizing um, getting to mental health services. Maybe your friend will say, okay, if you're having difficulties, let me help you get to services. So it's not just intervening and getting someone to help. It's increasing awareness of mental health issues in veterans and the population writ large and destigmatizing suicide. Do you have any success or intervention stories that without uh, – compromising privacy that that really have stuck with you that that you could share with our listeners yeah there's tons of them um and it's it's really reinforces what i do and what my team does every day uh we have watchstanders report to us that um they encounter a, a homeless person and they've directed that homeless person to um temporary housing um we have watchstanders who say they were on a work zoom call and uh they asked a friend to stay on and asked if they're doing okay and passed them the 988 crisis line or 211 um we hear it all the time um in fact um when we launched the Watchstander program, we know we can track how many Watchstanders there are and where they are by census tract and county. Um, we know where the suicides are, where they're happening by census tract and county. But the CDC approached us about this time, actually in uh, the end of uh, 2022, and said, um, we love your program. We love what you're doing. Can we help you put together a process evaluation to determine if your watch standards are doing what they're supposed to be doing. So we love your veteran suicide reduction, but we want to make sure it's due to your watch standards and not some other factor. Sure. Um, so with the CDC Foundation, we put together a watch standard survey process that we do quarterly, and we have found that roughly 37% of watch standards have referred a veteran to resources within the last three months. Wow. So if you look at that and, and extrapolate it over a year, our network of close to 6,000 watch standards um, – are probably going to be referring uh, 37% of that. That's probably about 1,500 are going to be referring um, over four 
upwards of 6,000 veterans to resources during the course of the next 12 months. We know our Watch Gender program is working, and we know we are one factor in ending veteran suicide. But all those wonderful resources that I mentioned before are who are our partners are also a, a huge factor in ending veteran suicide in Northeast Florida. When you bring this up and you just mentioned the CDC, do you uh, see any policy changes that could really help to put this on steroids, if you will? Yeah, I I don't foresee any right now. But um, once we get our third year of data, when when this team of veteran advocates created the Firewatch, we said in order to show that we've systemically reduced veteran suicides in a targeted region, we want to see three years of reduced suicides, 25% below baseline. Um, right now, we're 46% below baseline. When we get the next... Um, uh, level of data, which we'll probably get in April or May, uh, and that will cover up to December 31st, 2022, I think we're going to start singing this from the rooftops. It's not like we're going to declare a victory, but I think we have enough right. um, data sets to say what we're doing is working. Let's get this rolled out everywhere. Um, it's it's a conclusion that FTVA, Florida Department of Ver- Veteran Affairs, has already realized, um, and uh, that's why we're rolling out under with their funding to the Tampa Bay and the southeast Florida area. Let me ask uh, on this, uh, given just as, as you pointed out, just some of the wonderful success that's out there, I, I imagine if you're a non-veteran that this will have significant interest. Is this... I know this is designed around veterans, but what about civilians? Sure. Well, that is a great question. And if my chair of the Firewatch were here, <laughs> General Mike Fleming, he he would have uh, uh, pulled me aside and counseled me already. Um, because the one of the main objectives of this program um, is to get civilians involved to help veterans. So we know that in Northeast Florida, across Florida, and generally um, uh, nationwide, about 10% of uh, our U.S. population has served. If you're relying on the 10% to help the 10%, you're probably not going to get much done. So our program does engage the other 90%, civilians, folks who haven't served, um, in a way that just with half an hour of free training online at thefirewatch.org, they can help our U.S. military veterans and help solve a national epidemic. Along those lines, I know that people will be listening and they will want to know how they can help. And I know you've just mentioned it, but how can, I mean, what can the community do now to play an active role? Or maybe they want to do the training and have that, that cool card you were just showing me uh, right there, which now I don't have one. Now I feel like I have to get one for sure. Thank you. Cause this is, but how can they, how can they, be part of this. Maybe they want to be the the trainer. Maybe they want to be learning from this. Absolutely. Well, the the number one way is to go to thefirewatch.org. Um, you can click on Watch Shander Training. It's free. It takes about 30 to 35 minutes. Um, you go through the training. Um, it's online, several videos, and we ask you to explore the resources guide and a handful of other things. And then you take a little pledge that you will um, help a veteran if you encounter a veteran who needs help. And that pledge is based off a uh, a VA pledge um, that they launched several years ago, and we um, right around the same time we were building our program. And then you get, like I mentioned before, the the wallet card, which reminds you of the training you took, the wristband, which only watchstanders get. Uh, I'm wearing mine right now. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yep. <laughs> and um, you get access to the Psych Armor portal, which is a, a watchstander, your own customized watchstander portal. 
Uh, so we're asking the best way that we think to help end veteran suicide by prevention is as many community members becoming watchstanders as possible. So we've removed all the barriers. It's free. It should be easy to do. Um, that is number one. But you know, it was interesting that you mentioned, uh, can someone become a trainer? Right. Yeah. Right now, uh, training, you can either go to the website and take the training yourself, or I have three employees, I call them regional programs directors in our three core areas in, in Florida, who go out and do training themselves. And, and that originated from the PGA Tour Right after we launched, um, it we launched in end of 19, we launched a Watchstander program in early 2020. PGA Tour in 2021 said, we really think this is a cool program, the Watchstander program. Is there anything, they highlighted it during the Players' Championship, and they said, is there anything we can do as a business? So we created a program called the Veterans Safe Place Program, where we train, if we train 50% of your employees or 50 whatever's less, as watchstanders, you become a veteran safe place. And we now have over 100 veteran safe places, including one of the very first, PGA Tour. Um, we have the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars um, sure. and several other prominent organizations across the state of Florida now who are veteran safe places. Why that's so important, really twofold, is um, it helps organizations who want to get involved. Okay. Um, and the second uh, I mentioned that we have data where we can pinpoint yes. um, where our highest risks are, where the veteran suicides are happening. If we know, uh, for example, there's a very high risk uh, tract within Northeast Florida that extends from Middleburg down to Penny Farms. Okay. If we know that um, that's the highest risk, we can try to get businesses there to train their employees, and we use that program to do that. So we can build our network where it's needed most using that program. I love this. And our final moment... If our listeners, uh, well, maybe I'll ask it this way. What message do you want to leave with our listeners today uh, with regards to this? Because I think we've covered so much ground here, but what what message do you want to leave with them? Well, I would say that U.S. military veterans are folks who've kind of written a blank check for uh, uh, up to and including their lives uh, for their country and our freedoms. Um, it's up to us as a community to come together to help them, and this is a way to do it. Nick, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us today. This is amazing work. Uh, thank you so much with all that you're doing for your service uh, and just uh, spreading the word around on such an important topic. Dr. Joe, thank you for having me and thanks for bringing awareness to this issue. You bet. We've been talking to Nick Howland. He is executive director of the Firewatch. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luck. Stacey Bennett is our producer. Brady Quorum is our director. Next week's program is a look at how communities can tackle chronic diseases and fighting heart disease like cancer. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tag me at x at jserven. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening, and stay in touch. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com. 
the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. And Rethreaded restores choice and breaks the cycle of generational trauma for survivors of human trafficking in Jacksonville, Florida, through business. You can help. Learn more about Rethreaded survivor-created goods at the storefront or rethreaded.com shop. 